in a free private city, it's just that the others cannot interfere into the relationship that you have with the provider. So the provider cannot force you to pay for the swimming pool. You can do this through voluntary association, right? With other people who also want the swimming pool and then say, everybody who hasn't paid for it, that pays a higher entrance fee, whatever. That's fine. But people cannot force you to pay for something you do not want. And that is giving you a much, much better protection for your individual liberties than in any system that is based on representation. Because the representative institutions, they will always be subject to lobbying, cronyism, interest groups, power plays. And it cannot happen here, right? Because you say, hey, it's not in the contract. <laughs> I'm not paying for that. And the other thing is, I don't know if you're aware of that, but at least in the continental European science of the state, it's it's clearly that taxes does not entitle you to a certain service. Right? You, you don't have a claim to a certain service or quality of services, which is totally different from what everything we know from the from the civil world, from the real world. Right? You pay for something, it's bad quality, you give it back or want your money back or part of your money back. And if they say they're not delivering, you say, oh, I'm keeping my money back. And that is also the case in the real contract. And that is a is suddenly creating a completely different relationship between you and the state. It's not there is you are a subject and I make the decisions. No matter if I'm a dictator or an elected president or there's a parliament. No, no, that's a completely different thing. I'm the service provider and if the service is bad, you have some rights. You don't hear very often of a misuse of uh, customers in resorts or on cruise ships by the security forces. Because these people know that you're a paying customer, so they treat you like a paying customer. There are people who do wrong, but they are then treated as still as customers. And that would be the, the same idea here, right? We are, we are not uh, bullying around people or mistreating them because they are paying customers. And so they have to be treated like paying customers. That is, I think, the main difference between a state and, and a private uh, governance provider. If you agree with me that the relationship, the bilateral relationship between the city provider and the resident through this contract is the most important element, then it's not so important who owns the city operator, right? It's like who owns the cruise ship, we don't care. Welcome to An Architecture, episode 25. We had the opportunity to interview Titus Gebel, who is the president, founder, and CEO of Free Private Cities Incorporated, which is an organization that is trying to build new cities with a unique relationship model between the owners of the cities and the citizens of those cities. Rather than having a coercive state government, a free private city is owned by a corporation and the citizens of that city each have an individual contract with that corporation as a service provider. And so the kinds of services that we normally think of being provided by city governments and this arrangement would be provided under this service contract, which would be similar to the way you might have a, a contract with an electrical company to deliver electricity to your house. This is a really simple idea, which may seem obvious to people who are familiar with libertarian theory or anarcho-capitalism, 
but it has a lot of profound consequences on the relationship between citizens and the government or the operator of the city, as Titus calls it, with perhaps the most important part being that if the operator breaches that contract, the citizens are able to sue them just like they would any other service provider that breaches a contract. There are historical and contemporary examples of cities that have some similar characteristics to what Titus is proposing here. What really distinguishes a free private city from a private city, or let's just say a private development, is that the free private city is securing for itself a degree of autonomy from the host government, whether that's a nation or a state, so that some of the rules of that host nation may not apply within their walls, or to the extent that they do, they are codified in these contractual arrangements between the city and its citizens. An example of this is special economic zones like Hong Kong or Shenzhen, where a designated area of land is granted greater freedom over the administration of its territory than what would be allowed in other areas of the same country. And Titus and free private cities are really looking to take this to the next level by making governance in their cities explicit through these contractual arrangements. Well, this might seem like a utopian libertarian fantasy. Titus is actually out there in the real world trying to make this stuff happen. And there's sort of a whole ecosystem of people who are involved in projects like this, especially since places like Shenzhen, Hong Kong, Singapore provide a real-world example of the benefits that can be gained, not just to the people living in these cities, but to the surrounding areas as well. And so while the free private cities idea is really in its infancy, it sounds like there's already some promising developments that are underway. One aspect that's intriguing to me about the prospect of free private cities is a possibility for unique forms of urban development. One of the advisors to Free Private Cities, Inc. is Patrick Schumacher, who is the principal of Zaha Hadid Architects, who we've had on our podcast. You can hear our interview with him in episode 11. One idea that Patrick often promotes is the concept of a market-based urban order, which is this idea that the form of a city might grow and evolve based on entrepreneurial decisions that are made within that city rather than some kind of a top-down administrative plan. And with his preferred architectural language of parametricism, this could result in some really interesting and unique urban forms. I think that a free private city would be an ideal place to start to test some of these theories about a form of development that is less planned and more responsive to path dependencies and opportunities that emerge within the urban fabric. One aspect of the free private city that Titus really emphasizes is the openness to experimentation and allowing Marcus to drive decision-making. He envisions a world of multiple private cities being a sort of laboratory where different, not only urban forms, but business ideas, service provider models can be tried out. And even within the bounds of, of a single city, you might have one half of the city that's run a certain way and another half that's run another way, and people would decide to live in one or the other half of the city according to their own preferences. And of course, the service provider model provides a lot more flexibility to the service providers than a government has, which is acting under a whole history of legislation and a regulatory regime, whereas the main driver for a free private city operator is meeting the requirements of the contracts it has with the citizens, as well as making a profit and staying in business. If you listen to our interview with Chuck Marone from Strong Towns, which was episode 23, a lot of the problems that Chuck talks about with cities not being able to keep up with maintenance would likely be avoided in free private cities because rather than the people getting together and deciding to build something, 
you've got service providers who have contracts in place which obligate them to continue to provide a certain level of service throughout the duration of the contract. And at the same time, they're free to set appropriate fees in order to cover the costs of the ongoing maintenance. And these service providers also have an incentive, as do any other market participants, to reduce costs in the long term while maintaining that level of service. Titus has put a lot of these ideas together in a book which is called Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You, which is an excellent read on a lot of these ideas. And even for people who are involved with traditional cities, I think it's worth thinking through some of these concepts that he introduces. In particular, there's a chapter on historical and contemporary examples of cities that have had some degree of autonomy from their host nation and some of the successes that they've seen as a result of that. We'll link to the book in our show notes, as well as Free Private Cities, Inc., and all of the other resources that we mentioned in the interview. So here's our interview with Titus Gable, President, Founder, and CEO of Free Private Cities, Inc. We're pleased to welcome Titus Gable to the Anarchitecture Podcast. Titus is the founder of Free Private Cities, and he's also written a book called Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You. So, Titus, could you start off by giving us a, a brief overview of what a free private city is? Yes. I mean, obviously, uh, government is not competing for us, right? So that's, that's <laughs> not happening at the moment. And free private cities is, is a concept to, uh, to get to that point. So what is a free private city? Now, just imagine a private company offers you the basic services of a state, which I would say is the protection of life, liberty, and property. And uh, the company is doing this in a defined territory within a host nation. And you pay a certain amount for those services per year, and all your respective rights and obligations are laid down in a written agreement between you and the city provider. And apart from that, you are free to do as you choose. Thus, you would be a contracting party on an equal footing with a secured legal position instead of just being subject to the ever-changing whims of politics be it majority or government. And what is more, you only become part of it if you accept the offer. And as long as you are happy with uh, what city provider is doing. So this is in a nutshell what the free private city is all about. And it is on, on several fronts, it is revolutionary compared to what we have today. And that is for reasons that few people reflect. I mean, a lot of people talk about a social contract, right? But what kind of contract is that that can only be changed by one side? And it's never us, right? <laughs> so that is a strange contract. And, that, and this misbalance is one of the reasons I figured out for the, all the hustle and uh, all the, the confrontations we're having in today's societies. It's just that you do not basically pay for what you ordered, but you just forced to pay for everything they think is good for you. And what, what I'm offering here is, is a completely different concept. It's a service. And when I was, uh, I might have heard that I live in Monaco, which is a principality in, uh, on the Mediterranean Sea, surrounded by France. After a year being here, I thought to myself, well, why, wait a minute, normally I'm I'm interested in politics and I'm engaged, but here I have absolutely zero interest to become part of Monaco politics. Why? Why is this? And, and I asked myself and I asked around friends and 
basically the answer is we just want to be left alone, right? We we but we need something, right? We want to be to live in safety and security. We want to be able to send our children to the street to the streets even at midnight without being afraid that they are killed or raped or whatever. And we need some civilized dispute resolution in case in cases of conflicts and of course some infrastructure. But if this is there, then well, that's fine. We're willing to pay something for that. And I said to myself, well, if this is what, what we want or what many people want, we don't need a prince for that. Right? <laughs> a private company can do. And um, that is uh, then basically has condensed into that uh, concept that I worked for many, many years. Uh, it's, it's a fruit of, of 30 years of, of political observation and engagement and few years of living here and three years of writing the book and the concept and, of course, reading tons of, of other stuff. Of course, the, the problem is that you, you, you can't do that because the whole, just because you want it, right? You need a contract with a, an existing nation. That is basically the downside, but there's no way around that. Yeah, reading through your book, I guess one thing that struck me is, you know, everyone talks about location, location, location. And it seems to me that um, when you're starting out a free private city, I mean, we're really talking about building a completely new city from scratch. The idea of location, I mean, historically, cities have developed in places where there was some advantage to mm -hmm. the city developing there. For example, a, a port city or a city where two rivers crossed or, or where you know, two train lines crossed or something like that. But it seems to me that the absence of an existing government, or at least the, the weak presence of an existing government, could actually be considered a geographical feature that would be advantageous to developing a free private city because you would have kind of less of that administrative overhead of, of negotiating with the sponsor state. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, at, at the end, it's a, the decision for a potential location is, is also uh, a consequence of many, many parameters. But a government that is not interfering is certainly such a strong point that it outweighs maybe some disadvantages regarding infrastructure or climate. But overall, I mean, it's still something that if you, you, you probably want to have proximity to infrastructure, you want to be in a, in a climate zone that is not too extreme, you want to be in a location that is not too distant from everything. Because otherwise, it's difficult to find people, right? Yeah, I know that. I live in Australia. I know what that's all about. <laughs> Being in the middle of the bush, right? So yeah. say, or people seasteading out of the exclusive economic zone, right? right? 300 miles on the sea. And then this is all possible, but it's very difficult to, to attract a lot of uh, residents to go there. On the other hand, I must say that the advance in technology is making good for a lot of disadvantages that were a point in the past, right? And I, I think in, in the not too distant future, when we'll maybe all have a small nuclear reactor, then uh, small island cities can, I mean, cheap energy is the answer to everything. And if you have this uh, on, a, on a very local level, that is giving you an enormous advantage. And then if you have planes that can basically land like these drones, right, uh, vertically, then suddenly you don't need a big airport, right? <laughs> and, and people can reach you from big distances. Both of those technologies are already there, right? It's, they're not really serial, but you can see them coming. And I, I would say in the future, it will be even easier for us uh, to make something like that happen because 
geographically disadvantaged spots are, are many, many available, right? Nobody yeah. wants to live there. But for the moment, that is not what we are targeting. We we also targeting spots that are closer to infrastructure. So in order to get one of these projects started, a two-part question. First of all, who's involved in getting this off the ground? Is it a matter of getting a group of investors together and then approaching a host nation? Or are you seeing that some... I know you, you've mentioned some areas where there might be a, a weak government or a, a failing government that is looking for new ideas. Yeah. Who do you see initiating this process? And then how do those negotiations with a host country work? So far, I mean, the idea was uh, I write a book, I made some videos, some speeches, and write some more articles. I've touched the, the mainstream press, at least in Switzerland already in and maybe I'm, I'm going more mainstream over the next uh, two years. So that first, I spread the idea and then follow an opportunistic approach. I'm basically getting, not every week, but every two weeks I'm getting a proposal, right? Somebody's saying me, well, I've heard what you're telling and it's a great idea. And here is a country that maybe it could work. And, uh, and I have developed a kind of a wish list where it's more about the legal and political autonomy. And I say, look, these are 10 points. And it's not necessary to have all of those, but tell me what is politically possible in that country. And normally then 90% of the people are out, right? Because it's just too <laughs> difficult to get certain yeah. legal autonomy. That's really the hardest part, right? Mm. And you had the right assumption. It's uh, more the countries that have troubles <laughs> that are open to such uh, more or less radical new ideas. But on the other hand, I'm selling this. So I'm, I wasn't really going to a lot of uh, just uh, asking governments. I was approached by people who thought they had a, had a way to a certain government, a certain country. And then I was following that path and, and clarifying together with those local people what could be possible? And what, what really is the outcome is indeed uh, countries that have issues are more open to that. You don't go to the government and say, this is a libertarian idea that is disrupting government and kicking you out of business. No, you say <laughs> that is special economic zone next level, right? Yeah. If you want to be competitive in the area of special economic zones, then this is a special administrative zone or a super economic zone or whatever they are. They want to hear right yes. today what's currently hip hype is a blockchain crypto high technology zone right <laughs> and then you sell it like that i mean that's what people and politicians want to hear and and then you give it to them i'm i'm pragmatic i'm flexible if they say yes you can do it but it has to be has to have some blockchain crypto elements well then let's let's go that way but my experience would be if, if somebody, I'm still hoping to reaching out of one of the supposedly 6,000 billionaires we have on earth, that to find one of them who's convinced by the idea, because the, if you have, say, 100 million investment capital, you can then approach, I would say, about 50 countries, which are then immediately willing to discuss if you say, well, we are bringing 100 million investment capital plus. Hmm. Right. Mm. Suddenly, a lot of doors are opening. Right. At the moment, I can only offer a couple of millions. So that is not really interesting. It's more interesting than just a, a crazy student coming. I have a great idea, but it's still something where I have to have an extra, which is mostly a political connection into that country, which is helping me. 
But I think the next phase eventually will probably come that at some point in time, somebody says, that's the right model. I support, I'm going to support that model and I'm allocating 100 million. And then we can really approach countries and say, look, here's what we offer. And then they compete at some point in time, they're hopefully competing for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we have really to go and ask. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, there are a few examples which you detail in your book. I visited uh, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, I think maybe a couple of other places that are a bit like that, Macau, China, which are these special economic zones. As you say in the book, the Deng Xiaoping revolution in China, starting in Shenzhen, really made China what it is today from a Maoist backwater back in the 80s or whatever. And so hopefully by having some of these examples that you can point to, it'll make your case a bit stronger. You know, you can kind of say, well, look, we understand what's happened, what these places have done and why they've become so successful. And we want to bring that to you. You've got a sales pitch. Frankly, it's a big advantage and also shows that the time is right, that there are more than 4,000 special economic zones already. Mm. And that has been started from a handful in the 1960s, right? So within 50 years or 60 years, that has all grown. And then you have these special, like Hong Kong, these special administrative zones, or you have in Dubai um, a zone where they have their own legal system with judges from London. So this is something that is really helping me indeed, right? Because I can point to their places and I, I show them. And another thing I do, I recently did with negotiating in a, with a, a government in the, um, and even parliament in the Southeast Europe, I was showing pictures of Monaco, uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, where the city states were just white, blank white, but only around you could see the belt of wealth and uh, of, of houses and everything that was just that came into existence around those cities, right? So you had these white dots in the middle, there was nothing, which was the city state, and around a lot of uh, population, a lot of activity. And that is, um, of course, Shenzhen is also close to Hong Kong, right? So and that, right. This, is, this is somehow convincing because I can say, even if you don't rule this dot in the middle, you will have a lot of benefits from that. So this is one of the main arguments because people tell me, well, it's a nice idea, but why should states do that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's, one, there's only one answer to that because they want to gain something out of that because mm -hmm. they have their own interest. This is yeah. the only answer, right? So I have yeah. to create something that is a win-win situation, but it's possible, as you pointed out. I mean, you have seen it with Hong Kong. Hong Kong was the blueprint for Shenzhen. It is very close, and so that helped Shenzhen and eventually China to develop. Yeah, thinking about what you just said about how these cities could come in and create wealth all around them, how do you see negotiations going, not just with the host nation, but with the existing residents who might be in an area? Because I'm assuming that most areas that you're, you might be trying to start one of these cities, if it's in a developed country, that there might be existing occupants there. How do you see integrating those existing occupants, both in terms of their citizenship status as well as maybe their property ownership? How does all of that play into the creation of a private city in an area that may have some existing population? Yeah, that, that is a very important question. As you know, my, my concept is uh, originally based on 100% voluntary participation, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why we are going to start on uninhabited territories. Okay. Do not want to to force people into something that they do not want. But having said that, probably that will not be possible uh, in all places, right? 
And this is something, there is no real voluntary solution to that. There's only either the referendum and then the people who, who are voted against and are remaining the minority, they are either offered an own district within the city where they can follow the old rules or they are paid out and say, okay, you, you, you get a, basically a cash payment for, leaving, for you leaving the zone. Or they are just by political force, the application of the contract, it's just issued by the government and declared applicable, right? So these are basically the only options you have if you want or if you have to create a free private city in an area where some people are already living. It's not ideal. So the ideal world would be that you are really starting from scratch and everybody who is coming 100% are based there on informed consent, right? They know the contract, they know the rules, they sign up, and that's it. Okay. How does a property ownership work in one of these in one of these cities? Does the, the free private city, if it's a group of investors, are they coming in and then do they own all of the land or is this just an administrative service provider, you know, a layer mm-hmm. on top of an existing system or maybe a kind of an English common law system of property ownership where then these lands are are homesteaded or or however that might happen. Yeah, basically everything is conceivable, but I think the most realistic model for the free private city as a for-profit enterprise, right? That that is also something which is important. The city operator is a for-profit entity because this is the only way to give him the right incentives to to not raise resources to treat the customers well because otherwise he's, he's going out of business, losing reputation, maybe becoming insolvent. And therefore, the easiest way to make money is really to own the land or parts of the land, which are then transformed into a free private city. So obviously, or hopefully a much higher, uh, better framework, which is then justifying high, higher ground valuations. And then you can sell something off to people. You can sell whole portions off to um, real estate developers. You can also say, okay, uh, we own only part of the land, but all the property owners, they have to agree to be part of the free private city, of course. But for them, it might be very interesting, right? So ideally, in an ideal world, you would say, okay, I'm the free private city developer. I think I have uh, an option in this country to do something. And I have already discussions with the government. So I'm going to look for an area, say 10, 20 square kilometers or whatever, bigger even. And you say, who owns the land? Then you make option agreements with the landowner saying, in case we get this approval for free private city, we will buy it for a fixed price. Because otherwise the price will skyrocket after it's known, right? So that's mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. that's the way we are already proceeding in, 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 a, in a project in Central America. And then you can say, okay, Maybe we don't have enough money or it's not easy to buy more than five square kilometers. And then you try to convince somebody who is a landowner, say, do you want to partner with us? Becoming a landowner in a free private city, you would be the first citizen as well, or you have to sign a contract. And and then it would be normal, right? You could then either make parcels, sell them, lease them, do whatever you want with that. I mean, there's another model that is more coming from the viewpoint that you can only kick out people if if you are the property owner and therefore we keep all the property and only lease it so we have the right to kick people out but i think this is not maybe the most attractive model because people really want or many people want to own right they want to really be owners of something 
And if they sign a contract that we can kick them out if they breach a contract, I don't have a problem with that. So I don't see much of a difference to the model that you say, well, you can only do this if you're the landowner. But because ownership has to be defined legally as well, right? So at the end, you have to, to agree on a certain definition. And so far, a lot of things are possible. You can also, of course, think that you only the governance provider, you don't own any of the land. That would be conceivable as well, but probably then it's hard to make money, right? Because in my model, you pay a certain fee, which is probably making some money if you have more than 10,000 people. But before, it's not really it's not really making money. Otherwise, the, the fees have to be very high, which is then also uh, keeping people away from coming. So it's um, from the calculations we have done, it's uh, the best way is really to make money with uh, land transactions and use the money to subsidize the infrastructure that you have to set up. Because it's difficult in the beginning, it's, you will probably not be able to find too many residents or too many real estate developers if there's nothing there. Yeah. You have to, to make some pre-financing, but that's how venture capital works. As far as developing infrastructure, I see that there's two ways to develop infrastructure. You can do what I call push development, which means that you build something out to some sort of completed state, expecting that the fact that you've built that infrastructure means that people will come to use it because now there's that amenity that they can use. The other way to do it would be what I call pull infrastructure, which is a bit like lean manufacturing, where, where you, you only build stuff as it becomes needed. So it's a bit more of an incremental development approach. What I'm wondering is, do you see these cities starting as basically a, a city-scale development to begin with, or do you, do you see it starting as maybe a, almost a small real estate development and then expanding out from there? The latter. And I would say, of course, because of, uh, of financial restrictions. But even if we had a lot of money, I would rather prefer this approach, uh, organic growth, I mean, we are, we are basically all uh, freedom-loving libertarians, so we probably don't want to have eminent domain, right? But then you have to keep space for the roads and mm -hmm. the potential airport and all that. So you need a kind of a planning, master planning. So our compromise solution to that is, I'm sure you are aware of Patrick Schumacher's market-based urban order thing. So our compromise proposal, and, and he's also working together with me and, and us, and then our idea is that there is a certain master plan where it's a kind of zoning. So you say, okay, there's, there's an area where we, especially in the core of the city, where there are more rules for aesthetic reasons, so that you have something that's looking nice and not too different. And then you have other areas on the outside where it's, it's completely open, right? I call it a freak zone. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> but of course, I mean, can be that your neighbor is building a pink skyscraper just in front of your nice garden. That can happen, but it's your choice, right? If you go there, everything can happen, but you things will develop. But I think the planning is more or less is a zoning, right? It's not really that we are constructing a lot of things and then hope that people will come. That should be rather grow from alone and the restrictions will be relatively low. We will we have introduced an idea that is air rights. You can basically, you have a certain uh, entitlement to build up to a certain height, but if you're not using that, you can sell it to your neighbor. You can then build higher, something like that. So it's a market-driven solution. So it's not completely that we just believe it happened. We will do some planning, but within that framework, it's more or less a spontaneous order. 
we hear the word zoning these days, you know, and what zoning has become in America and in the Western world is such a restrictive way to do planning. But the way that you're talking about, I see it being a much lighter touch where it's, it's more about defining specific uses for areas and then sort of letting the market decide what's really most appropriate for those areas. Yeah, I know that, that zoning has a bad sound, but I don't know what would be an appropriate word for that because what we want to say is here in this zone, it's for heavy industries and it's, it's yeah. be necessarily immediately adjacent to a living area. But the restrictions would be as few as, okay, this is the maximum height you can build and this is the maximum noise you can make. Yep. That's it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, and, and then it would be different from an industrial area to a living area, right? This is also a zone, right? But it's much less regulated than, than you have in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if this creates, um, I'm glad you mentioned Patrick Schumacher, because that, that was one thing I wanted to ask you here. If this kind of project could create some opportunities for more unique urban forms, you know, rather than something like a grid that we're familiar with in, in a lot of cities nowadays. And one example that comes to mind is something like Disney World. I mean, when Disney World was created, you know, Walt Disney negotiated essentially a special economic zone for himself in Orlando, Florida, and was able to develop a kind of unique set of services there. I mean, this was for a, a specific purpose for this, this amusement park and his, I guess, their offices there. But in doing that, he created a very unique urban form for this place and something that's very desirable to a lot of people. You mentioned Patrick Schumacher, who we've had on our show. And when I think about the kind of, as you said, market-based urban order that he's promoting, it seems to me like you almost need to have a project like this in order for that to really realize its full potential, where you look at some of the urban plans that he's put out there, or maybe some students of his have put out there, where it's this very organic kind of meandering roads that maybe it's a grid, but it swells in some areas and it, it's narrower in some areas. And it creates these, again, something you would expect from Zaha Hadid architects, where it's these very curvaceous kind of city forms. And part of the idea there with, with the market-based urban order is that each of these parcels are influencing the development of the adjacent parcels. So as you said, it's not a strict zoning, but I could see that this kind of city could create the canvas on which that type of a more organic and responsive urban form could develop. Yeah. I mean, this is something we are also very interested in. And I, I have the same assumption, but frankly, we do not know what is the ideal approach. And therefore, we want to try it out, right? And yeah. to make different districts within the free private city where you can say, in this district, there's, uh, you can do whatever you want. And in the other district, you have some zoning rules. And then maybe there's another district where, where eminent domain is possible. But the, the point is, if you really say people, you can do everything, then they can also block everything, right? That means people just blocking because they want to make money out of what they own. And, and that is something where you then maybe say there's no development because people would then go to other places where it's cheaper to develop something or where there is eminent domain. So this is something we have to find out. But I think we, we are willing to give market-based urban order a chance to develop and in different steps, some completely free, some lightly regulated, etc. Do you see that needing to change over time as a city grows? I mean, typically at least the way zoning kind of provisions work is the city reaches a certain point of development and then the administrators come in and they look at what's been developed and they say, okay, well, this is where we have commercial stuff now. This is where we have residential stuff now. 
And then they, they almost, they kind of set that in stone <laughs> and they say, this is what it's going to be forevermore. Whereas as a city is developing, in order for it to develop more organically, it seems to me that there needs to be some allowance for those rules and that plan to change over time. How could that get managed, especially where you have these kind of fixed contracts? Well, one of our ideas is that you have a certain noise threshold, right? Mm -hmm. The main background is that you can separate the quiet living areas from the commercial areas or from the industrial areas. But if you have somebody, let's say in a commercial area is growing into a living area for whatever reasons, and, uh, and you, mixed areas is not a problem, you have higher thresholds. But if there is somebody who wants to open a discotheque, right, or something noisy, he can, he can do in our system, he can, he can go to all the neighbors that are impacted and say, well, I pay you something, right? Or you can sell me your right to uh, this noise threshold. And if everybody around is okay with that, and at the end it's a matter of price, then these developments can happen. So we do not want to block this organic uh, development, and we do not want to set it in stone. It's just the initial setup, right? It's what we are making, and so that people that want to live quietly and don't want to have skyscrapers in front of their nose, they know where to go. Right? That is the idea, because you want to be customer-friendly. But from there, a lot of things will develop. And over time, maybe the uh, small houses area will become the new downtown. And in the end, it's a question of price, right? If somebody is willing to sell and everybody wants to sell, then the new uh, owner, of course, can, can change that uh, direction. You've talked about infrastructure being owned by the city operator or, or the city owner. One thing that I was wondering is whether you'd envision multiple competing infrastructure providers and or even multiple operators within one geographic area. So within, say, one city, would it be possible to have multiple providers of, of what we, you would call government services, which could be police, fire, garbage removal? As far as infrastructure goes, there's sort of natural monopolies that develop with you know power lines and sewer lines and all that. but. When I think about, you know, I've got one power line coming into my house, but I can actually choose from a number of different service providers to contract with to provide my power to me. And I guess I'm just wondering whether you see a similar sort of competition being able to develop between multiple providers for pretty much any service that you could be buying in a city. And are there any conflicts that that might create? Yeah, look... At the end, that should be the case that you we are encouraging uh, people to to provide for that. But in the beginning, probably we'll have only one service provider offering water, electricity. But these things develop over time. And uh, I mean, I think water is a natural monopoly. We'll see how we figure that out. You can you can also say, okay, if there's a real estate developer for a certain quarter, we say, okay, you can take care of that on your own, right? And if you mm -hmm. think better. But one thing that we do not want to split is security. I mean, you can have your own security, but the final say about, because there will be rules and there is a, is a legal basis and people who are not paying their fees, well, they will be kicked out or becoming criminal. So if, if you don't have the last word in that, you, I think you have to give up your, your position as a, as a city operator, because then it's becoming much too dangerous 
because the guy with the bigger security force and can just say, you can tell me whatever you want. Uh, I don't care. <laughs> and I mean, imagine you had a different, it's like having on a cruise ship, having competing captains and competing securities, right? It's not happening mm. uh, because the transaction cost is much too high. So if you have competing securities, which have to find out what is the, the rule that the, the collision rule, which is applicable if you have people with two different security providers, and that is very difficult. Um, the moment you say it's one rule, then you have to, you need to enforce that rule. If you cannot enforce that rule, it's not going to be enforced. Yeah. I'm happy if people are uh, proving me wrong and showing that this is going to work, but I, I heavily doubt that it's going to work, and uh, for the reasons mentioned. But this is competition, right? I'm not claiming that I have found the final solution to all problems of mankind. I'm just a guy who's offering a product in the market of living together. And I have, out of my experience, out of my thinking, I have some conclusions. You might have different conclusions. And we just try it out on the market. And, and then we will find out what works and what doesn't. I think part of the security question there, and, and I agree that it's a challenge to conceptualize having multiple security providers within an area. Part of that might depend on the way in which certain parcels of land are developed. So you might have, you know, let's say you have a, a 10 square mile city or something. Maybe you have one square mile of that, which a certain developer takes on as kind of a, you know, a sub-development within that city. And that area could potentially have their own security within their development to some extent. And then if there are problems that they can handle, then they're going to the larger private city security provider. So I think that that could create opportunities where you can have not so much competing security providers, but at least competitive security providers that are serving their development and then are cooperating with some higher level of, of authority um, at the city level if there's something that they can't handle. Yeah, that's, that's certainly possible. I mean, the, the moment you have a, a geographical separation, then it's not a problem, right? Or not as big a problem. Mm -hmm. You still have some issues about the overall umbrella regulations. But we are already negotiating with people about such districts where they say, okay, we won't have our own security, but in certain cases, we come back to your court system or whatever. Mm. And that is indeed something you can think about. And I think that was also the case, the San Francisco private police work. They were given certain quarters. And if they were not performing well, then the quarter was given to another police provider, right? Mm. So Things like that can work. That is possible. It's, it's much easier because then you have only one security provider in a certain area. Yeah. One thing that I found interesting when I was reading through your book, which I hadn't really thought about before, was the fact that you've got individuals who have contracts directly with, let's say, the government or, or the operator of the city. It's similar to the way that you know people have used banks as intermediaries for transactions where if I'm going to send some money to you, I don't have to actually take the money out of my account and hand it to you. I can just instruct my bank to send the money to your bank. And it seems to me that we talked about the social contract earlier and the social contract, the way that it kind of works today, first of all, it's not an actual contract because it's just sort of this vague idea that people have about you know people owing things to each other. I think if you wanted to formalize that, you could say that the social contract as it exists now is a contract between an individual and every other individual in the society in a certain way. But in a free private city, you have a contract between an individual and the operator, and then every other individual has their own contract with that operator. 
I think it just delineates the way that you interact with that operator and with the city services much more clearly than what we have today. Everyone thinks that they own city assets or any assets that are owned and controlled by the government. You know, people think that they own that just because they pay taxes. When it's, you know, it try try to actually make some decisions that affect those assets and, and and see how well that goes. I think one of the key features of the free private cities is the fact that since you have this contract, it just clarifies your relationship to the city and to your other citizens so much better. It just avoids a lot of conflicts. Yeah, and that is indeed very well said. I mean. I have some difficulties explaining to people why the contract system is so much better, but I think you put down some very valuable points. And, and and the other thing is that in the social contract model, it's not only that you basically have a contract with everybody else, but everybody else can also interfere into your relationship with the state, right? They yeah. say you have to should pay higher taxes because we want a swimming pool. And in a free private city, it's just that the others cannot interfere into the relationship that you have with the provider. So the provider cannot force you to pay for the swimming pool. You can do this through voluntary association, right, with other people who also want the swimming pool and then say, everybody who hasn't paid for it, that pays a higher entrance fee, whatever. That's fine. But people cannot force you to pay for something you do not want. And that is giving you a much, much better protection for your individual liberties than in any, any system that is based on representation. Because the representative institutions, they will always be subject to uh, lobbying, cronyism, interest groups, uh, power plays. And it cannot happen here, right? Because you say, hey, it's not in the contract. <laughs> I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm not paying for that. And the other thing is, I don't know if you're aware of that, but at least in the continental European science of the state, it's it's clearly that taxes does not entitle you to a certain service, right? You, you don't have a claim to a certain service or quality of services, which is totally different from what everything we know from the norm, from the civil world, from the real world, right? You pay for something, it's bad quality, you give it back or want your money back or part of your money back. And if they say they're not delivering, you say, I'm keeping my money back, right? And that is also the case in the real contract. If you think about you, you own an apartment in a free private city and you pay a certain amount per year. And it's clearly said, basically, my main product is security, right? That's the main product, security, but not only for your physical body, but also for your property and, and your liberty. So now... It's broken into your apartment. They stole, things have been stolen. And you can go to me and say, wait a minute, Titos, I'm paying for security. And now they've stolen my things. I've been robbed. So you owe me damages, right? You can claim damages because I didn't fulfill my contract, my part of the contract. And that is true. That is right. I probably will have insurance for that, but I'm still uh, liable for this a malperformance for this misperformance of my contract. And that is a is suddenly creating a completely different relationship between you and the state. It's not there is you are a subject and I make the decisions. No matter if I'm a dictator or an elected president or there's a parliament. No, no, that's a completely different thing. I'm the service provider. And if the service is bad, you have some rights. And no matter what the rest of your fellow citizens tell you, and still you will have in the contract beneficiary clauses 
towards the others, right? So the others are protected too. So you, the contract says you cannot infringe into their rights. So they all, it's not that you are just as an individual on your own and it's a society where everybody's just looking on his own. No, no, you can associate with everybody and the others are protected by me too. But this, I think this, the bilateral relationship is changing a lot. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was actually broken. My house was broken into on Valentine's Day this year. And, uh, you know, they, they stole a bunch of my wife's jewelry. And luckily, they didn't take my computer or anything. But, so, so I didn't lose any of the podcasts. But all that the police could do, of course, we, we called them after the fact. They couldn't prevent it from happening in the first place. They came and had a look around. Well, they, they tried to dust for fingerprints, but it looks like the guy's wearing gloves. So there's nothing really there. There's no chance that they're going to catch this guy, you know. And so, of course, luckily we had insurance and we were able to file an insurance claim. The only function the police actually provided in this thing was that they provided a report, an official report that we were broken into and, and that certain things were stolen, that we could submit that to the insurance company yeah. to make a claim. <laughs> Sometimes they are finding the stuff and then can identify that it was yours, but indeed it's more mm. it's useless, right? Yeah. Even in Monaco, we have the same problem. They People were scratching the cars in front of the uh, the house and we were also mm. affected and people said maybe it's the other neighbors who want to take those places or whatever, but police did nothing. And I said, what about all your cameras, right? But oh, we don't have a camera here. They say, then install one. It's happening yeah. Oh, no, we can't do that. It's the debt. The government has to do that, not the police. And I said, it's not uh, mine. Yeah. Either I'm a customer or not. If I'm a customer, I'm, I'm... Well, here's the thing with Monaco. I can tell the minister, one of the ministers, that this is a problem. And he's listening to me and he's saying, let's do something about that. I mean, that that is incredible, right? Mm. In, Big country, you will never, you will never meet the minister, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who's in charge of that? And the government is not thinking that they are a service provider. Yeah, that's the other thing. And I would say, in, if if something like you had it was broken to your apartment in our city, we would say, well, that we have to immediately to do something about that, right? And the answer to that is, of course, you will have more cameras. But the other answer is also you will will screen people who are immigrating into your city and if people are becoming known criminals yeah then goodbye right yeah. we have a positive selection over time and people say oh that's not social what what happened with all the poor people i mean if people are really robbing other people they are not poor or broke into other apartments that's their own decision and they have to, to take the consequences and um, if you are not going that way well you will then <laughs> it will not get better Right, and that is also something I, I found out that many libertarians do not understand that that if you are not punishing people for doing bad things, they will do it again, and others will copy them because they see, hey, they can do that without any disadvantage. Mm. And that is that is the thing. If you do not understand that, yeah, you will probably not be successful in the in the market of living together. Yeah, it, it seems to me like in a free private city, because you have such a different relationship with the operator than you do with, say, the government of a traditional city. Having the operator of a free private city install cameras and have a you know, more of a police presence around the city, it seems to me that that's, it's not as creepy as it is if, if a government does it. Because, again, you're protected by this contract, which will probably have some provisions in it for privacy and, and all of that, which, you know, and of course, you've got the ability to sue if the operator breaches that contract. But of course, you don't have that in a traditional city. So I don't know. I mean, obviously, as a libertarian, I, I do have a kind of a, you know, a knee jerk 
response to the idea of, of living in a surveillance state like that. But when you go to a shopping mall or, or a place like that, you know that they've got cameras there. And those cameras are there not only to protect their own interests, but also to protect the other customers who are in the, who are in the shop. I don't know. I, I haven't really thought it through yet how I would feel about having cameras everywhere in the city if only the people running those cameras were a party to this contract that was protecting me. At the end, it's a trade-off. If you are yeah. living in an environment where there's a lot of crime, then you probably need those cameras. If you are in an area where people are nice to each other and never has been a problem, then it's a different story, right? Yeah. At the end, my market thesis is that if you cannot provide security, then you're out of business because this is the only justification for all this construction, right? And otherwise you can say, well, I, I'm living together with other anarchists and everybody has a gun and then we take care of ourselves. I don't mm -hmm. think that's an attractive model. But if you are not providing security, then the other model is maybe the better one. So I would say, and I, I'm, I'm sure there's demand. There will be a big demand for that. And uh, when they introduced the first cameras in Monaco in 82 or so, there was a big protest all over and Europe said the world is coming to an end and all mm -hmm. that. And everybody at the moment, they're coming to Monaco because the cameras are there, right? Because, yeah. <laughs> because they know that there is security guaranteed. And that is, it's a kind of decadence, I would say, if you say, well, it's a lot of problem, it's a surveillance state, et cetera. Well, if you are not protected, well, you, you will be killed. It's that easy. <laughs> and, and if people do not understand that, and not all of us want to take care of our security ourselves by having a gun all the time. And I mean, you have also a family, right? So we have families and we want them to, to be protected. It's a division of labor that I do not have to take care of protection of my life every day. <laughs> and that is what we provide, nothing more. Right? And if we, if we do things wrong, like, again, cruise ship captain, Captain on the high seas is the number one on the on the ship, right? He's number one executive, number one legislative, number one judicative. And he wants to radically flock you for not being well-dressed at the captain's dinner, right? <laughs> because that's the law of the sea. But he doesn't, because you then would sue the company when you're back on land and you're a customer. And it's the same with us. I mean, you don't hear very often of a misuse of uh, customers in resorts or on cruise ships by the security forces. You don't hear that very often, uh, mm. basically never, because these people know that you are a paying customer. So they treat you like a paying customer. There are people who do wrong, but they are then treated as still as customers. And, and that would be the, the same idea here, right? We are, we are not uh, bullying around people or mistreating them because they are paying customers. And so they have to be treated like paying customers. That is, I think, the main difference between a state and, and a private uh, governance provider. Can you talk a bit about how, I guess, that dispute resolution process would work? If somebody has a problem with the state with the, or the, the, the city administrators, how do they go about getting that resolved? Because that, as you said, that's really one of the, the biggest advantages here is that you have this recourse mm -hmm. with the city when you have this contract in place that you can adjudicate. So how would that happen if somebody had a problem with the city? It's more difficult in practice than in theory. In theory, it's relatively easy to say, okay, for you make up your own courts uh, within the city for all kinds of disputes that the people have with each other, companies have with each other. 
And they can, as today, they can say, no, we want to be opting out of those courts. We go into private arbitration. We go to courts of other countries or whatever. But for the disputes that you have as a resident with me as a city provider, we have, we would have an outside arbitration where you would nominate an arbitrator. We would nominate one. They would agree on a, on a chairman or chairperson. And then they would make up, uh, come up with a decision. Right, so that, that it's not our guys who are deciding on cases against us. So if this is holding in practice, I'm not sure. Probably it's easier to make all these cases in front of a specialized arbitration provider who might really specialize on that, so they don't have to, or a special court. Right, we are currently trying to find that out. But the idea is that you really go to independent outside arbitration for cases uh, that are basically rising under our contract. Yeah. And that's basically no different than any major construction contract. There's usually a clause in there for some sort of third-party arbitrator to mitigate any disputes. Yeah. The problem is, look, if you have a problem with a fine or something, right, that was imposed upon you for wrong parking or so, you can then go, at least in Germany, you can go to the administrative court and say, it's wrong. I wasn't parking there. And and there's no cost associated with that, right? So the state is basically paying for that courts. And if you have a, a, a lawyer, of course, then you have to pay him. But if you can't go to arbitration to London or Singapore with a fine, right? I mean, I think the minimum payment you have to make to the professional arbitration tribunals is $1,200, right? Yeah. <laughs> it is the minimum. So we have to find a, a different mechanism, which is also amenable for the daily thing, right? You can mm -hmm. say, okay, there's a daily problem. The police did treat me wrong, right? They made a mistake, and I want to have this clarified by tribunal. And then there has to be a small claims tribunal thing. So this is not existing yet, right? Yeah. So these are the practical um, issues we have. That's why, why I said it's, it's easier in theory than, than practice. <laughs> Other than, I mean, obviously resolving disputes with the city is one way to clarify and possibly even change the arrangement between the city and its citizens. Do you see any other means of citizen involvement in some of the way that, that a city might be managed, whether it's some kind of an ownership stake or how do you see that possibly working? Well, I think if you agree with me that the relationship, the bilateral relationship between the city provider and the resident through this contract is the most important element, then it's not so important who owns the city operator, right? It's like who owns the cruise ship, we don't care, right? <laughs> and uh, as long as they stick to the rules that are in, in the contract, in our holiday contract or whatever. But in our case, it's conceivable that you ask everybody who is coming into the city to buy at least one share of the city operator, so there's a kind of alignment of interests. You can even say we don't like private. We want to make it a corporate cooperative. The residents own the city, right? But this does not change the basic concept. Because if it would change the basic concept, then we are back in the same problem that we are having now, that a group of people is deciding about our lives. Mm. It would just be another group. would be the majority shareholders, would be the majority of citizens. No, no. They can own the city operator, but they all have to stick to the contract, right? Yeah. And then it's not so important who's the CEO of the city or who owns the city uh, operator. It's more important that the framework guaranteed by the contract is really attractive. 
And within those frameworks, people can have all kinds of associations, right? For example, they can come up with a council and they say, we make our own decisions. Yeah, that's fine. But if, even if 99% of the residents become member in the council, the council cannot force the remaining 1% to pay for the swimming pool, right? Mm -hmm. and that is the difference. And, and so far, I would say probably it's rather than you have a hotline and people say, hey, I want to uh, have a proposal and we want to do something like that. And it's more spontaneous order. We say we guarantee the, the security framework, the legal framework. Within that, you do what you please. And you, you make all kinds of associations with fellow citizens, right? Mm -hmm. They can say, hey, can we take over this quarter and make it totally whatever, sustainable, uh, CO2 neutral, whatever, you name it, right? No problem, right? No problem. That is more what I think is the future of those developments. We've talked in our show before about the idea of privatizing public space. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, the free private city concept sort of gets around that because public space is by default owned by the operator of the city. There's no public space. <laughs> There's no technically... Well, there are public spaces in the sense that there are spaces that the general public can access and can use. Yeah, and and yeah. you could see that as one of the services that the operator is providing to the citizens. Exactly. Um, you know, access to these public spaces. And we've talked about kind of the same thing you just said, different forms of ownership for those spaces, such as co-ops or uh, some sort of trust or even just private for-profit corporations. And it seems to me that with the idea of a free private city, it's almost expanding that out to the broader city. You talked earlier about the ability of the, the city operator to basically kick people out of the city. And public space plays a big role in these sort of ideas. If you're kicking someone out of a city, essentially what you're saying is that that person is not allowed to come onto any of the public spaces you know, owned by the city. And the private, well, I mean, you have a defined territory as a city entity, right? Yeah. Say, we don't want you to enter again into that city, be it a public or a private space. Right? Yeah. So that is, that. I mean, that's what they do in Monaco, right? If, even if you are just a, a small petty crime pickpocket or have stolen a small thing in a shop, that's over, out, you are out. Mm -hmm. And even if you have been here for 10 years or 20 years, if you steal, you're fired. <laughs> and that is something you, a lot of people think, oh, that's such a bad thing. I guarantee you that cities who are following that, they will really develop to the opposite of a police state. They will develop into places where they don't have contact with the police for years mm. because it's not necessary. And that is what I see here. And so far, we have an advantage as a free private city that has a contract with an existing nation, but once it's established, that you can say, okay, everybody who's coming has already a citizenship. So they can easily sign that they go back where they were coming from, right? It's getting more difficult if you have people who were born in the city becoming criminals, then you probably have to keep them, right? <laughs> but they will be in prison for a certain time. And then maybe you say, okay, you can leave, but uh, only in that direction. Yeah. Well, and then you'd also have the legal recourse would be more about restitution of the victims than about punishing the criminal. You know, where if someone's a thief, then what they really need to do is to compensate, first of all, return what they've stolen. And then obviously you need some deterrent as well to prevent them from stealing again. But in the free private city, the incentive is not to put people in prison. The incentive is to make the citizens whole again. And, you know, you want to recover as much as you can from the person who committed the crime. And then, uh, like you said earlier, the city operator is essentially 
providing a guarantee or, or some level of guarantee of security and has some skin in the game to make those citizens whole again. I guess the thief in that case could essentially become almost a debtor to the city. So the city makes the citizen whole for what they've lost. And then the thief is responsible for paying that. Essentially, it would work out as, as almost a fine back to the city to cover what they've lost. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a big field where a lot of things also can be tried out. And you have yeah. what the cities did in, in the Middle Ages. And there was also more a compensation thing than, than punishment. But keep in mind, I mean, if you, if you just kick people out and say you have to pay damages to the victim or the victim's family, then... There are people who have a lot of money. They're just uh, going on manhunt in your city, right? They say, I paid my million and they kick me out, no problem, right? <laughs> so it's not enough to just kick people out or let them pay something. Therefore, for heavy crimes, there must be also a kind of a punishment. But I agree with you that you should keep this to a minimum in order not to punish the citizenship a second time, right, by paying for for all that. Yeah. It's probably not so easy that you can solve all issues without a criminal code at all, right? Mm. So say, okay, it's just, uh, you just do it by payment and people don't have money, right? And you say, okay, and now you have to work, right? Yeah. <laughs> work for the next year to make good for that. And I think we will see different things that have been tried out in the past again in the future. Yeah, and I get one thing that's great about the free private city concept is that it's really about having multiple laboratories. So, so especially if if you are able to get more than one city up and running, then you can have these competing kind of laboratories for some of these different services to see what really works. I think we're coming up on time here a bit. I did want to ask about whether there's any projects that are currently in process that you can talk about or... Um, just curious to see what's on the horizon. Yeah. Well, we have one project, which is not really a free private city, but I would say 70% of a free private city. Mm -hmm. But this is something where I have high hopes that we can really show something to the world that is not just talking, but we can really demonstrate something. I would just invite you and your listeners to subscribe to my newsletter, which is not coming often, maybe every three months or so mm -hmm. on the website. And, and there you will, you will be informed when we're really officially starting. There will be also application procedures and the, the rules explained and everything. It's like what I said, it's, it's, it's a product and you can look it up if you like it. And then you can decide if you maybe only want to become an e-resident first, right? And they <laughs> a resident so this all will, should be possible so where can people find your book i think i've got it on kindle from amazon yeah is it available generally wherever you buy books yeah it's a it's it's available the english version is available as an audiobook as a print book as a kindle book and i think itunes also yeah. so you can go to the website freeprivatecities.com there are links or you go to amazon and uh they, in amazon i think you can find all three types of the book Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been reading it over the past week. And um, I kind of thought I had a pretty good understanding of what this was all about. But reading the book, I did pick up this quite a lot of detail in there. I mean, it's clear that you've done a lot of research <laughs> for this book. Uh, some of the historical stuff was really interesting to me about the Hanseatic League and some of those other historical developments. Reading through the book, you know, there, there was all these just little tidbits that I picked out here and there that, you know, I just hadn't quite thought that way before. And it's clear that you, you're very open minded as to what's possible for these cities. You're not coming at it with a specific set of rules in place saying, well, this is how it's going to be. This is the only way it can work. It's all about creating a framework 
for people to experiment to find out what works, you know, through the market. Yeah, it's a market basically I want to create, right? A, a new market where different competitors can try their ideas. And I've not written the book, and, and I thank you for making all these acknowledgements. I've not written the book for libertarians, right? I've been, written it for everybody. So that everyone yeah. who's interested in, in new forms of living together can have a look. And, and it's detailed for a reason, because I want to encourage others to do similar things. If I fail, you guys can take up and say, okay, now, okay, we are covering some of his ideas, but here we have other ideas. And then we make up our own our models. And I think the learning curve will be much, much steeper than what we have seen the last 2,000 years. And uh, that is really a chance for all of us to improve mankind and to make more people happy, right? I mean, if more people are living in a society that they better life, that is already an achievement. So I think that is my goal. And thank you for your support and spreading the work. Yeah, and thank you for joining us here on An Architecture Podcast, Davis. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to An Architecture Podcast, the built environment of a stateless society. Visit anarchitecturepodcast.com to follow our blog and social media and find out how you can support us through Patreon or with cryptocurrency. And he's also written a book called Free Private Cities, with the subtitle, sorry, we've got it here. Making Governments Compete for You. That's it. <laughs> with the subtitle, Making Governments Compete for You.